invite you, brothers and sisters, to take your Bibles. Turn with me to the book of Exodus. It's hard for me, I don't know if it is for you, to say for the final time in this study. The final time in this study. Not the final time ever, of course, but in this study, Exodus chapter 40. Exodus chapter 40. If you're visiting with us and do not have a copy of God's Word, just look right in front of you in the rack. You will see one there. Please grab it, follow along, second book, last chapter, Exodus 40. Indeed, our Lord's Day study in this book, in Exodus, draws to a close today. In Westmount, we have beheld wondrous things in this book, have we not? In Exodus, more specifically, we have observed, and we would say it this way, glorious things. Glorious things, many of them, and we will be reminded of that glorious journey one final time this morning. From darkness, oppression, and slavery in Egypt by the hand of Pharaoh, to light, freedom, and to service on Sinai by the hand of God. This journey for God's people culminates in these closing verses here. Let's look at them. The very end of the book, verse 34, let's read them, this beginning of the end. Verse 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. The cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, and the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, You indeed have spoken these words, Lord, these ancient words. We pray that you'd give us eyes to see them today. Help us to understand what you're communicating in your word about who you are, what we are to do. Father, we ask that you would enable us to receive these words as we ask each Lord's Day to not forget them, to go out later and live them. To To your glory, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. The glory of the Lord. The glory of the Lord. That binding thread of all that we've seen in Exodus. The glory of the Lord. Represented in this book, and particularly now as it comes to the peak here, as a cloud. In fact, maybe you notice it's stated five times in these closing verses. One time in each verse. The cloud. The cloud led the people out of Egypt in chapter 13. Remember the beacon by day, God before them. The cloud appeared far off in the wilderness in chapter 16, the response to grumbling. The cloud atop Mount Sinai in chapter 19 and chapter 24, the manifestation of God with law. The cloud appearing to Moses, remember, in his tent and on the mount, appearing to him, as mediator Moses was, between Israel and God. 
the cloud a constant reminder, beloved, in this book that God was with them. God is with his people always. The cloud, the glory of the Lord went with Israel before Israel, always close. But listen, to this point, was never in Israel. The glory of the Lord had not to this point dwelled with. Yet that dwelling has been the expectancy in this book from the opening chapters. From Egypt to Sinai, expressed most succinctly in Exodus 29 verse 45, there Yahweh declared, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. Yahweh says, I will dwell. The Hebrew word there is shaken, where the idea of shekinah comes from. The Shekinah glory, which is the dwelling glory, the glory that is God with man glory. Again, that glory manifested as a cloud here in Exodus was near but not in. Here in these final verses, the glory, the cloud does indeed fill. Shaken. And each mention of the cloud here reminds us of what we have learned along the way. It has been what? God and God alone. It is His glory alone now that seals this book. And Westmount, is it any surprise? The Lord has been the continuous pinnacle in Exodus all along the way. Now the glory of the Lord descends, and we will see its multi-dimensions in this concluding text. Let's now turn our attention to the first one found in verse 34. This dimension, the cloud of presence. The cloud of presence. Look with me at verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This is, of course, the capstone to the construction we have seen in recent weeks, stretching back to chapter 25. The tabernacle sourced, built, inspected, and consecrated. It is now ready. As such, the cloud covers the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord fills it. God's presence has been near to the nation of Israel in Exodus, but always in a sense at length. But now, God's presence, do you see it, is within the nation, amidst them. God's presence, more so, dwells among them. Remember when we embarked on this journey in Exodus, this was a main theme. The presence of God. The God who comes near, the God who dwells with. And with that, Exodus is the book, as we have seen, where God made himself known. Indeed, God was known, it is true, to Adam, to Noah, and to Abraham. We see that, of course, in the book of Genesis, making himself known in one sense. However, Exodus is where the presence of God came down. In Exodus, the presence of God came down and indwelt a bush, do you remember? Before Moses, initiating God's plan of deliverance in light of his covenant promise, first by calling Moses. Let's review. Go to chapter 3. Let's look at and be reminded of God's faithful presence there in the bush. Remember, all the way back in these opening chapters, God's faithful presence in the bush. Chapter 3. Let's just read verse 8. This is again God out of the burning bush before Moses. 
And I have come down to deliver them, that would be my people, God's people, out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. A reminder of the promise, but more as we've tracked in Exodus, the presence has come. Before Moses in the bush. In Exodus, the presence of God came down and led a freed people. Now wandering. Recall the presence of God, His glory manifest as they were delivered and going out. Manifest in a cloud by day and fire by night. Go to chapter 13. God's guiding presence in the wilderness. Remember this at the end of chapter 13. This really was their navigation in the wilderness. Verse 21. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. That was the guiding presence of God. But we also saw in Exodus the presence of God coming down atop a mountain, sitting, setting before Israel. Recall God's manifestation in the cloud with smoke and thunder on Sinai. Go to chapter 19. You recall this. Pick it up in verse 16. The glory of the Lord atop the mountain. On the morning of the third day there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke, because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. We see God's terrifying presence on the mountain. So many manifestations. And here upon completion of the tabernacle, as we go back to chapter 40, upon completion of the tabernacle, remember that is where we're at, it's been completed, Now, upon completion, the presence of God comes down, and not only comes down, comes upon the tent of meeting and fills and indwells the tabernacle. Westmount, let us never forget the cloud of presence, God's presence in this book. And with it, please let us not miss and forget the rich lesson that we've learned all along the way. Let's hold tight this morning. Let's hold tight. And it's this, the presence of God is the foundation of relationship with God. The presence of God is the foundation of relationship with God. We cannot, beloved, have relationship without presence, can we? Of course, we could say many things about recent years, how that has been exhibit A, has it not? You cannot have relationship without presence. You cannot have relationship without presence. But more than that, we would go to God's word and see it. Vividly in 3D, Israel, you cannot have relationship with Yahweh without presence. More, Exodus reveals to us that relationship in God's presence is rooted in promise. 
It's God's presence manifest to his people. Here it is because of his covenant promise that he had made with them. A covenant that would never be broken. As such, relationship with God with God cannot happen outside of covenant or presence. There is no sometimes relationship with the Almighty. The Almighty doesn't pop up here and there checking in on how things are going. Exodus reveals to us that relationship in God's presence has terms. Yes, we don't like terms like law or standard, but beloved God does. And he gives them. Presence with God means you live in relationship, here it is, with God as he has defined. It's true in every relationship when we come to terms with it. Every relationship has terms. How much more the terms with the Almighty. Next, this we've seen exactly what that looks like. So helpful. And conversely, we've seen what it looks like to live on one's own terms, own flesh, own feelings. We've seen that play out in Exodus. This is what it's like to deviate from the terms of Almighty and live by your own terms. We've seen it. In Exodus, we've seen not just Israel's, but we've been reminded because of incidents in Israel of humanity's great problem. And what is humanity's great problem? When we think about presence, it's this sinners want a Savior. They just don't want a Lord. Sinners want saving, but that's good. Don't give me a Lord. Israel cried out to God, chapter 2, and when he saved them, they just cried, chapter 16. Grumbling, that's fists in the air, rebellion, until they were what? In trouble again, and on it goes. You know, it's as inane as a man who is being saved. He's drowning in the water. He slipped off the bank, and he's fallen in the water. And the rescuer comes and he pulls him out of the water. And it's inane as when the rescuer says, this is how you walk so you don't slip again. And imagine the drowning man chewing out the rescuer. How dare you tell me how to walk? It's funny, isn't it? That's what we do. Sinners want a Savior. They don't want a Lord. But Exodus has shown this brightly. It's illogic and folly that we are prone to as well. Remember It's not just an Israel thing. It's a humanity thing. Church, let us hold fast to the lessons of God's presence here in Exodus. God's people need God's ongoing presence. That is why presence with the body of Christ is very important. God's people need, capital N, God's ongoing presence. God is a God of presence, and God Almighty is present for the purpose of relationship. And not only relationship, but protection. We've seen this in Exodus 2. So we know how to live, and we're kept from the traps and the pitfalls of life, so many what? That we don't even see when we're in the presence of God. God comes down and is present with His people to commune with them. Listen, not just to pull us out of darkness but to instruct us how to live and not wander back into darkness again. God's people need, mark it, God's people depend on God's enduring presence with them. That's the cloud of God's presence that we've seen here in Exodus. Next, the cloud of holiness. Look at verse 35. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. 
You look at that verse and it must raise a question for you. Why is Moses unable to enter the tent? Right? Why all of a sudden can he not enter the tent? I mean, not only did he ascend the mountain and enter the cloud in chapter 24, but recall back in chapter 33, Moses was confronted in his own tent, his personal tent, with God's presence face to face. So what's going on here? What's different? Why is now Moses barred from God's presence? Well, the answer, as it normally is, and we found this too, is actually right there in the verse. The answer is right there. Look again at verse 35. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because, reason, purpose, the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled, note this, the tabernacle. The tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter because the cloud had settled, not in his personal tent, not on the mountain, not anywhere else, but the tabernacle, this tent of meeting. This is not Moses' personal tent, or it's not the mount. This is the tabernacle. Again, the tent. Now, the dwelling place of God with men complete. That's the key. The tabernacle. Tabernacle complete and with complete instructions. Remember, we have a penchant for this, right? Often. Oh, right, it's done, and we ditch the instructions. How often do we not find those instruction manuals when we need them later on, right? And you see the same thing here. Well, it's done. We don't abandon the instructions. Tabernacle complete with tabernacle instructions. Very specific, very exact. Remember chapters 25 to 31. The instructions that revealed what? That this tent construction was different. It's not a personal tent. It's not a mountain. It's not anywhere. The precious materials, the precise measurements, the perfect plan for this tent, this sanctuary, this tabernacle. Crafting, specific crafting was needed because why? God would dwell there. More than a mountain revealing or a temporary visit outside the camp, this was a far more lasting dwelling place. This was, again, the tabernacle. And God had given very clear instructions as to market who and who alone would serve in this tent. And that was who? Aaron and his sons, the priests of Aaron's line. Not Moses, but Moses' brother and his sons. But even more than that, instructions were still needed for what entry into the tent looked like. And what the purpose was for one entering the tent. You didn't just enter the tent. Again, we're challenged with our own sensibilities these days, right? It can go any way we like it. No, you don't just enter into the tent. And for that, the purpose, Exodus gives way to what? The next book is Leviticus. You get even more specific instructions. That, in one sense, is the sequel, in many ways, to Exodus. The book of Leviticus, the book of tabernacle service. The what is going on in the tabernacle? That's Leviticus. A book, not only, by the way, outlining how the priests were to offer sacrifice, But a book outlining, and this is important, why they were to offer sacrifice in that way. Leviticus 11.44, note it. For I am the Lord your God, I am holy. That's why. Moses, as much as he stood out and was unlike other Israelites, could not just now enter the finished tabernacle. God's given law now prevented it. There were terms. Now, as we consider Moses in law, we're reminded of another theme in this book, 
And it is, of course, holiness. God's holiness. The reason God's presence needs regulation. Holiness is the reason why we need law. Because God is holy. That means, beloved, He is completely unlike any other. He, Yahweh Himself, is set apart. More, the triune God is not only set apart, but listen, fully devoted unto Himself. The devotion of Father to Son, Son to Spirit, Spirit to Father. That's pure holiness. Completely set apart, fully devoted. And for any mere creature to have relationship in God's presence, there was the matter of holiness to tend to. And this we cannot miss. Because why? Creature is unfit, right? Creature's unfit. Unfit. Moses had to remove his filthy sandals as he drew close on sacred ground. Israel had to consecrate themselves before approaching the mountain. The tabernacle pieces, remember that, along with the priests, needed to be anointed. We looked at that last week. Westmont, the cloud of holiness here reminds us, here it is, that access to God is limited. Access to God is limited. Yes, access to God is not a free-for-all. We want all things to be these days, but it's certainly not with God. No, access to God is restricted, and here it is, by our nature. Access to God is restricted by our nature. We cannot, in our natural state, have relationship with God. Ask Adam and Eve. Let alone be in His presence. God's Word tells us that we once had, speaking of our ancestors, we once had unregulated relationship, presence with God. Can you imagine? Unregulated relationship with God in that garden. In the beginning, Genesis 1 and 2, but we rebelled against God. We had unregulated presence, but we rebelled. We chose our own way and we sinned and fell short of the glory of God. That is all of us, by the way, Romans 3.23. God's word cannot be clearer. Thus, all humanity was plunged into deep trouble and separation from God. And God had warned that even with that separation, Genesis 2.17, what? The, the sure and slow and horrible process of death would begin. You will surely begin the process of decay and death and perishing. Genesis 2.17. Of course, humanity reveals up to this very day and this age we're in that we still choose our own way. In fact, we are so proud of choosing our own way, aren't we? So proud of it. There's not just an app for that, there's a flag for that. Everything, we choose our own way and we love it. And our way, as the evidence reveals around us, leads to chaos and it leads to death. And so relationship and presence thus with God is not a matter of our choosing. Beloved, not only do we not, but we cannot. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. We are walking dead. And so we're restricted to God's presence simply by who we are. Mercifully, praise God. God did not leave us there. Exodus and Moses' barred entry here may end here, but there is more to unfold in God's word, such as, as we've already mentioned, Leviticus, that illustrates what's needed to enter God's presence and be holy. Sacrifice is needed. Sacrifice that in Leviticus is the shadow, the Levitical system, the shadow that points forward to the substance that would come in the Gospels. 
the substantial sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the perfect God-man slain for sinners. Not all sinners, but for those regenerated by God, those repentant with belief, repentance from their own righteousness and works, which only bring death, and believe on Christ's work and His righteousness, which is the only way to life, said the Savior, John 14, 6. Belief in Christ is the only way to be right with God. There is no other way to be holy. The cloud of holiness here is a reminder that access to God's presence, listen, is divinely regulated. There are terms of entry that must be met. In preview here in Exodus, we've seen the holy regulations. Not just tabernacle, but what? The law of God. The divine standard of presence and relationship This is what what did he say to Israel? This is how you will be my people. This is how you will walk so the nations will know that you are my people. Ten commandments, the ten words, the law principle rooted in what? The character of God. In other words, Yahweh said to be my people, to live as my people, you will live and act and behave and your standard will be me. That's how they'll know Yahweh because you live and act me. The law, chapter 20 to 23, the very character again, the very nature of Yahweh, which is indeed what? Perfection. It outlines what perfection is. And no Israelite then or human being of any time can fulfill that perfectly. We know that. All cannot, of course, except one. The God-man, the Son of God, the Christ. He is perfect and holy. And he's without blemish or spot. That is why his sacrifice can and does make the most vile of sinners clean. Because his perfect sacrifice atones perfectly. There is no want from God with that sacrifice. When Christ stands in the sinner's stead, Almighty God looks on his son and his perfect robe. And his righteousness is credited to the sinner's account with this declaration. It is finished. Sins that you and I, brother and sister, cannot atone for. In Christ, then, we are forgiven. Here's the stamp. Debt paid. The Holy One in place of the wicked ones. We can never hear that enough, can we? The Holy One in place of the wicked ones. That is the glory of the gospel. And the gospel is a message of what? Access to God, sinners reconciled, sinners brought back. The gospel not only declares to humanity that access to God has been cut off, that's what's placarded before humanity, access to God has been cut off. You are not your own God. You cannot be God. You can't just get back to God. That's the bad news because of our sinfulness. But with that, what do we proclaim to the nations? That you can be reconciled. And that's the good news. That sinners can return to God's presence because of the Holy One. For those that truly turn from their sin and truly believe on His name to save, then they are made holy because of and in Jesus Christ. And in Christ, thus, they have restored access to God. This is the pointer in Exodus with this cloud of holiness. Access to God's presence, the reality of relationship with Him is limited. This is the point. 
Even to Moses in this moment at the end of Exodus, in this moment of tabernacle completion, listen, God remains holy. He doesn't have a special Moses card here. God is still holy. And the cloud of holiness bars even the very best of men at the time. Moses, what a picture for us. This was the man of God of the time, the only one fit, and he is barred entry. No, not Moses. How much more then, beloved, us today, sinful men and women, apart from, apart from the sacrificial access, there in shadow, the sacrifices that would be outlined in the law. Here today, the substance of the Son and the glory of His sufficient holiness. That's the cloud of holiness. Let's move on to verse 36. Next cloud in view, the cloud of guidance. Throughout all their journeys... Whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. God, and God alone, was the guide in Israel's journey. He led his people by this cloud. And here we are reminded that Israel was on a sojourn and more was to come. But we pause here in light of the whole book and we're reminded of how far Israel had come. That journey, remember, from being persons of God to what? To being the people of God, right? Westmount, we recall here then that transformation for God's people. Exodus marks the transition of God's people from bondage to what? Redemption. Redemption. Exodus presents the transition for God's people from position to what? Relationship. Relationship, that's a trajectory. No longer just descendants, scattered descendants. No longer, but a nation. This is like conception to birth to infancy. That's what we've seen in Exodus. Exodus describes the journey, but listen, not all of it. In fact, it only outlines year one of this journey. As it has been a full year since Egypt, but it has only been one year. In Exodus, there's deliverance, there's nation, there's law. But one could say at the end of this book, Israel, what now? What now? For Israel, the cloud of guidance described here in verses 36 and 37 led Israel en route. A pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. That is, by the way, 24-7 guidance from God. And church, recall with me how much they needed it. Did they not need guidance around the clock? Recollect with me the pictures in this book that reveal how helpless these people were. The life of Israel post-deliverance offers all manner of lost dysfunction. Consider for a moment with me in review the short-sightedness of Israel's delivered life. Do you remember in chapter 14 they were delivered? Do you remember that? Delivered, And then what did they do in chapter 15? They sung. The song of Moses, we're delivered and free. You barely got through that chapter in chapter 16, what? We want to go back to Egypt. We want to go back to Egypt. And the grumbling ensued. They were led by God so powerfully under the plagues. You remember those, chapter 7 to 12. And then through the sea again, chapter 14. Powerful demonstrations of the Almighty. Yet, once they're alone... Waiting for Moses to return from the mountain, chapter 32, they what? Played. They played. 
God's people are liberated in one sense here, but in another they're still lost, aren't they? And beloved, I wonder if we realize how often we stray down a similar path. I wonder, I just wonder how often we do too. How often do we function as if salvation is enough? We've already talked about our allergy to lordship. But like Israel, we wander, and for how many is this relationship with God, salvation, and then thank you, God, I've got it from here. How often are we functionally Galatians in our sanctification? Remember them? Paul said, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this, and here's the question. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, thus they're going to abandon it? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? In other words, do you only need God to be saved, but for nothing else? No, God saves, God sanctifies, all God, all God alone. We need Him always. We talked about this with presence. Christian, let us not forget this lesson in Exodus, another dimension to it. This is not just presence for protection. This is presence for sanctification, for growth, just to keep us from harm. You too, you and I need to be led. Brothers and sisters, if we cannot save ourselves, why do we think all of a sudden we can sustain ourselves? Salvation has given you guidance to eternity. Praise the Lord, that path is secure if you're in Christ. But what of the path from today to tomorrow? How are you going to get to Monday? How do you navigate life here? How do we find our way through the wilderness of today? How do we not end up in wrong turns like Israel? So often those wrong turns take us to what? Dead ends of sin. How do we avoid desert grumbling? How do we avoid Egypt lusting? And how do we steer clear of golden calf parties? Beloved, we are not Israel. But we do still need guidance, do we not? Every day. Yes, we need just as much help in our own wilderness walk. Today, our sanctification. And so what is our cloud of guidance today? What is our, what is our help? What leads us day and night? We know it's not a cloud and fire in this administration. What leads us? How does Jehovah guide? <clears throat> our present guide is what David said is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Psalm 119.105. Our present guide is what Paul said is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Our guide is what? Look down at it. Do it. Look at it. That's your guide. Do you look at it as your guide? Or is it a helpful little manual when you're in trouble? You know, it should alarm us, beloved. It should alarm us in the wake of all that we've seen in Exodus, not to mention our own lives, maybe our own weeks, that we continue to seek guidance elsewhere other than God's word. Where's the friend that's going to tell me what I want to hear? Where's the news item that tickles my ear? Where's the Google search that pacifies the lust? We look for guidance everywhere else but right here. And you have it. 
How do you look on it? Do you treasure it? Is it indeed your life compass? Or is it just part of being here this morning to open the book? No, we sing. What do we sing? Speak, O Lord. Mouths open wide. Feed us by your holy word. Is that your heartbeat today? Oh God, my mouth's wide open. Feed by your holy word as we sung. Let the cloud of guidance in Exodus remind us of how we're guided today. One more here. And it is found in the final verse of this book. Here we are. The cloud of faithfulness. Verse 38. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and the fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Throughout all their journeys, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, the glory of the Lord was with them day and night. Throughout all their journeys, the cloud, the glory was in the sight of all. Yahweh never left them. In grumbling, in unbelief, in idolatry, he never left. What kind of God is this? And there were, of course, many more transgressions to come. Is that not true? But God was and is faithful through it all. Faithful to his promise, faithful to his people. Time and again in Exodus, God remembered his covenant with his people. As such, we are not surprised at this closing statement of faithfulness here. We should not be surprised. God was faithful to bring his people from Canaan to Egypt to preserve them. God was faithful to preserve them in Egypt from Pharaoh and plague. God was faithful to bring them to himself and reveal his righteous law to them. Yes, Exodus is revealed a faithful God. A God who preserves and keeps his people. The God of the Exodus, the God of this book, is the same God of Psalm 121. Listen. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. It's the same God. Yet more, Exodus is revealed a God of mercy. A God who gives, have we not seen this? A God who gives what is not due. That's our God. He gives what is not due. The cloud of faithfulness here is the same cloud that passed by Moses. Do you remember? In the cleft of the rock, in the wake of Israel's gross sin. Yet, with covenant renewal and this declaration, Exodus 34, verse 6, the Lord, the Lord, this is who Yahweh is, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God and God alone, as we remember Israel's sin, God and God alone has been faithful. That's the glory of God. Presence, holiness, guidance, faithfulness. We've seen all of that here in Exodus. And of course, not just to Israel, but Christian to us. And we remember his faithfulness to a people beyond. As we continue our recollections this morning, we remember this of a faithful God. We remember the promise that was made. Genesis 12, 1-3. to 
Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And then this. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you what? All the families of the earth shall be blessed. We remember the promise, beloved. But we also remember... As we consider the New Testament, we remember the plan. Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us, that's you, saint, in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he what? He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So we remember the promise, we remember the plan, and now we're going to remember the price. I'm going to invite the ushers to come forward to the Lord's table. We must remember. We must remember. If you are here today, You've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You've taken the first step of obedience and baptism. You call him Lord. We invite you to partake with us. We invite you. Thank you. If you have not done that, if you are still clinging to your own way, maybe you're okay with God, you would say, but you're still clinging to your own way. You certainly have not surrendered to his lordship. We just simply ask that as the elements come, you just pass them by. Because they would be meaningless to you. They're meaningless. To us, though, that have repented and placed faith and trust in Christ for every path of our days, they represent the sacrifice that's been made for us. But I do say to you, if it's not you, it could be you, and to consider the claims that Christ has on your life right now. Right now. As we conclude our study in Exodus... This is a fitting way to close, remembering, is it not? Remembering the table. Fittingly, as this book of shadow draws to a close, we look forward to a holy God who remains present, who guides always and who is ever faithful. That's what we consider right now. A God who came down, tabernacled, dwelt with Israel here in Exodus, right? And a God who came down and tabernacled with us in flesh by way of Christ. And we remember that tabernacle now, his life, his death, his resurrection. He said this as we consider one Passover night. This is what Christ, the coming tabernacle, said almost 1,500 years after the first Passover night as he gathered with his appointed twelve. This is what he said on that night before he was betrayed. Luke 22, verse 15. He said, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. The tabernacle, God in flesh dwelling with man, earnestly desired to be together this Passover night with his beloved. Then, of course, we're very familiar with this down to verse 19. He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. And then what did he say? Do this in remembrance 
with me. And in verse 20, it says, And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. He gave instructions so that we wouldn't forget and that we would always remember. As we've seen Israel forget, as we know we're prone to, we embrace then this blessed means of grace we have at the table as we partake together. Later, as we know, the Apostle Paul in the early church in the line of those instructions from Jesus, would not only repeat those instructions for the assembled church in the first century, they would also assemble, gather, and proclaim this. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim what? The Lord's death until he comes. Until he comes, the tabernacle in flesh the God-man will come again. Let's take that consideration. Let's just take half a minute now. Consider our week, our minds, our heart before we partake together, and then we will do so, the bread and the juice together. So let's just take a moment now.